the GOAT, the greatest of all time. When you think about that, who do you think of? Uh, be careful, because who you say is the GOAT will communicate how old you are. We could talk about athletes like Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, Hank Aaron. We could talk about actors and actresses. We could talk about entrepreneurs and business leaders. Lots of different people can be considered great. So what defines being great? We need to start by clarifying a few things. What time frame are we even looking at? Because in elementary school, maybe being great could just be having the best toys. Uh, in middle and high school, being great might simply be defined by being popular. In college and as a young adult, maybe being great might be just having the right connections. And if you become a parent, being great might be getting a full night's sleep. And that's as far as I've gotten, so I'm going to stop there. Being great can be defined in many different ways by different people. Today we're going to talk about redefining greatness. We're in part six of this series, and in this series we have said that Jesus is known for many things. Uh, some are most important, and some are not so important. Last week we said that Jesus is also a reminder of our priority. That for all religious people, including Jesus followers, we can get focused on the rules or the commandments as our priority. But Jesus came to remind us of our priority to love people. And in that message, we looked at the miracle of Jesus healing a man who had been sick for 38 years. And in this series, we've been mostly looking at John's account of Jesus' life. And John organized his account around the signs or miracles of Jesus as we journey towards Easter. Now, one of the miracles that we really won't talk much about today involved a guy named Lazarus. Uh, do you know what Lazarus was known for? Lazarus was dead and came back to life. That's kind of amazing. He was so dead that in the King James Version, Mary says, he stinketh. <laughs> Jesus spoke directly to Lazarus and brought him back to life. Do you have trouble believing that? Some of you might be wondering, like, am I allowed to actually answer that question because this is church? Yes, we actually like questions like that. And we are okay with doubts, including for those who have, for anyone really, who has faith. So if you doubt whether Lazarus was really raised from the dead, you're not alone. There were people back then who doubted that as well. But there were also people who believed. As we pick up the story in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45, it says this, Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. That Mary, who was Lazarus' sister, so those people that were with Mary, uh, they saw Jesus resurrect Lazarus from the dead, and they actually saw it. So what do you think those who saw it did? They believed in Jesus. Because if you saw Jesus do that, you would believe in him too. And again, Lazarus was so dead that he stinketh. His, his body was so dead that it was starting to stink. But then Jesus came along and brought him back to life. So the people who saw this believed in him. And you, you know this already, but not everyone would believe in Jesus. And in fact, some of the Jewish, the non-Jewish, the Roman people, uh, some of the leaders, they didn't believe in Jesus. Verse 46, but some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, if you don't know, the Pharisees were the leaders in the Jewish temple. They basically went to snitch on Jesus. He shouldn't be doing this. Like, doing what? Well, raising people from the dead? <laughs> so, verse 47, Then the leading priests and the Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Uh, basically, if he keeps raising people from the dead, everyone will want to follow Jesus. And their fear wasn't completely misplaced. Verse 48, If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army 
will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. And that's basically exactly what ended up happening. Verse 53. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death, which sets us up for where we are headed with Easter in two Sundays. Verse 54. As a result, Jesus stopped his public ministry among the people and left Jerusalem. That he couldn't be out in public because he was so popular at this time that the Jewish leaders would find him a whole lot easier if he had a big crowd around him. So in light of Jesus' popularity, he came to do something different, though. Really, in light of Jesus' whole life, he came to do something completely different. He came to redefine life. And in most parts of the world, we start on the bottom of sort of this organization or the club or the business or the company, uh, maybe as an intern, a rookie, a newbie, a junior associate. And then the American dream, and really what tends to be inside of most of us as humans, is that we want to sort of climb up that organizational ladder or chart. We want to get up as high as we possibly can to the top. That moving up the management tiers, the depth chart, uh, from a board member to an officer, we want to move up because of the perks or the benefits of, of being higher up in the organization. Now that could be recognition, that could be a pay raise, bigger budget, status, or making more decisions. But this is also how our neighborhoods, our friends group, a high school tended to work for most of us. Whoever's the most popular, powerful, important gets the perks. They get to push things down the organization. They get to make decisions. They get to give directions. They get to decide where we're going to dinner. They tell everyone what we're going to wear. They determine what is cool. They decide how we're going to play. What others should say and what they shouldn't say. And that is what we want if we're on top, right? But Jesus is going to sort of reorient us. He's, he's going to flip this idea of greatness upside down. And Jesus is redefining what greatness is. He, he gives us a new definition of greatness. And this is so important for you and for me because almost all of us have a desire for greatness. All of us have some desire, something inside of us for greatness. Even if our definition of greatness is different, having a desire for greatness is not necessarily bad, as we'll see a bit later. And in some ways, you were meant for greatness, but not necessarily the idea of fame, popularity, wealth, or talent, that Jesus would introduce to us a new kind of greatness that is actually accessible to all of us. Mark tells us about a situation that Jesus had with his closest followers that, that might seem a bit familiar to some of us for a few different reasons. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. If you want to follow along in the Bible app, if you don't have the Bible app, you can head to bible.com app. You can see the notes and verses by clicking the More menu option in the bottom right corner and then selecting Events and you can find our church. We'll also have the notes and verses on the screen as well. Again, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33. After they had arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, What were you discussing out on the road? Now this translation kind of just the meaning of the word discussion, but maybe it was more accurately an argument. And Jesus is basically saying, I heard you arguing about something, what were you arguing about? Verse 34. But they didn't answer because they've been arguing about which of them was the greatest. I feel like I'm constantly asking my own son or daughter that same question when they're arguing about something. And that isn't all they do, but that is some significant percentage of what they do. And then I start to think, well, was like, I that way as a kid? I'll wait a second for my wife to jump in the chat maybe and beat me. Uh, but no, of course I wasn't that way. I didn't argue with my siblings. I wasn't getting in trouble with my siblings. Uh, okay, that's only probably because I grew up as an only child. But these disciples probably don't answer the question for the same reason that my kids don't answer the question when they're arguing. Because they felt some level of shame because of what they were arguing about. Who was the greatest? 
And though they thought they weren't, and though they weren't really debating the greatest athlete or musician, they were debating who was the greatest in the group. They agreed that Jesus was in the top spot, like he's on the top. That spot's reserved for him. But who is just under him? And so Jesus is going to foreshadow what he's going to tell them a bit later in Mark chapter 10. He said this in verse 35 of chapter 9. He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him, and said, Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Again, if you fast forward a few chapters, a few scenes later, the same theme comes up again in chapter 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over to Jesus and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. Well, what is your request? Jesus asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. And basically, we've seen how popular you are here and how people want to honor you here. And if we're honest, we've started to gain some popularity and honor from just being near you as well. That we weren't too sure about following you at the very beginning when you asked us to, but now this is starting to get bananas, like how crazy popular you are. That we don't want to be on sort of the down low intern and rookie level anymore. We want to move up and be with you near the top. That we know you're at the top and you're in the driver's seat, but we want to ride in the passenger seat along with you. Verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? Basically, are, are you willing to sacrifice uh, what I'm willing to sacrifice and give up what I'm willing to give up? Like, I know you want the honor, but can you deal with the bitterness and pain that come along with that? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. And interestingly, in some ways, they were because the closest followers of Jesus would, be, would end up giving up their lives for following Jesus. That each one of them was killed because they wouldn't deny what they had seen. A resurrection, a resurrected Jesus, a foreshadow to Easter. And then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. And again, at this point, Jesus is really just talking to these two brothers, James and John, because they get to Jesus first to ask this question. But the other 10 disciples eventually see what's happening and they come as well. So let's see how they respond. Verse 41, when the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had said, had asked, they were indignant. They weren't just mad, they were indignant or furious. Uh, indignant could be considered one of the most passionate words for anger. Uh, they weren't necessarily mad because James and John asked the question. Probably more accurately, they were, they were upset because James and John asked the question first before the rest of them could. And Jesus sees this tension and the, the dynamics that this is creating and that these guys haven't understood his previous teaching about greatness. So Jesus is going to use sort of juxtaposition, using this situation next to another situation to compare and contrast the two situations. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over the pe their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. That they sort of flaunt or exercise their authority over those under them. They use their power to oppress others. That These disciples had seen that, and we have seen rulers do that. And then Jesus gives us a powerful phrase that I particularly like from the New International Version. Verse 43, Not so with you. That if you're not a Jesus follower, then you can be great however you want to be great. You, you can do you. But if you're attempting to follow Jesus, then he is saying you can't be great the way the world says to be great. You have to do it another way. So not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great. And he starts redefining greatness by acknowledging a desire that is really inside of most of us to be great. And Jesus doesn't condemn them for wanting to be great. 
he says you shouldn't, he, he doesn't say rather that you shouldn't even want to be great. He says, let me redefine what greatness is for you. Verse 43, not so with you instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Verse 44, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. That Jesus redefines what's greatness and what really being first really means. That it isn't like most of our org charts with everyone wanting to climb up the ladder to get to the top to be the greatest. That Jesus introduces to the world this profound, counterintuitive, upside-down way of life that if you want to be great, you don't ascend to greatness, you descend to greatness. And too many times when we think about greatness, we think about stepping up on a stage or being in front of a camera like this. And Jesus says that's not necessarily the path to greatness. But if you find yourself in a position that the world thinks of as great, remember that the point of that position and that status, whatever that is, is to use what you have for the benefit of other people. That the people below me are not here to serve me, I'm here to serve them. Now I've heard a few pastors say something similar to this, but most recently I heard Clay Scroggins say this, greatness is not about what you have. It's not about how much power, wealth, skill, popularity, etc. that you have. That greatness is about what you do with what you have. What you do with the power, the wealth, popularity, or status that you have. It's all about how much time you are willing to give away to other people. How much do you use your stuff to help other people? How you use your life and ultimately your whole life to serve other people. That serving is a way to practice being great. So did you know that God has wired each of us with gifts that we can use to make a difference and to be great for someone else? Did you know that? Like, do you know that God has given you gifts in a way that can make a difference in someone else's life? And if you know that, are you using your gifts in that way? Have you experienced the joy that comes when you use your gifts to serve others? There are so many ways to serve other people. There are many great ways outside of our church to serve other people. But there are also great ways within our church, and we just want to help you practice or find ways to practice what Jesus taught. That if you want to explore some of the ways to use your gifts to serve, you can head to our website, nlnc.org serve. The next verse, Jesus sort of starts turning the corner towards his death and resurrection that we're going to celebrate at Easter. And here's what Jesus said in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his right life as a ransom for many. That Jesus didn't tell us to do something that he wasn't doing. For even the Son of Man came to, to, not to be served, but to serve others. That there are many ways to be great. And Jesus was great according to many of our definitions of greatness. But Jesus is also a new definition of greatness. A definition that includes serving others, not just being served. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this teaching. Thank you so much that you are willing to teach us over and over again. Us personally, but also us as the disciples or as we see in the example that you had to teach it multiple times. God, thank you that you not only taught it, but you also exemplified it and you showed us what it was like to serve other people and to put other people ahead of yourselves. That's what really being great is about. So God, would you help us to know what to do with what we've heard? God, would you help us to, to look at our lives and examine our lives honestly? Are we pursuing a definition of greatness that is of the world? Or are we willing to pursue a definition of greatness that is your definition, that might not look like the way the world defines greatness? So God, would you give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard today? And God, would you also give us the courage to go and actually do it? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.